Welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Addiction and Recovery Radio, bringing you a 21st century look at 12-step life. Now, with less dogma and more bite, this is a production of RebellionDogsPublishing.com. Let us know what you think on Twitter, on Facebook, or at news at RebellionDogsPublishing.com. Rebellion Dogs Publishing is inspired, or at least the name of it, from a song I played in a band. It was a 12-step band in the 80s called uh, Skid Row. Not Sebastian Bach's Skid Row, but before that. It seems to be a popular name. Seems to be a popular place, that's for sure. At any rate, uh, we played uh, some covers. We did some Talking Head stuff. We played some Prince. We played some Jefferson Airplane. And Kathy S. was a singer-songwriter herself, and she made many songs. And one of them was called Rebellion Dogs Are Every Step. And it was about dogs that were following her around in her recovery. And I've always loved that song. If I can get a copy of it, I'm still in touch with uh, Kathy. It's just a matter of finding those old audio tapes. You know those Maxell audio tapes? (laughs) That's <laughs> That was the best we had. So if I can find that and convert it to digital, we'll be using that as our uh, intro music. I hope you don't mind the uh, Chronicles. That song is called When You're Not the Lead Dog, but not close enough for me. If we can get that Rebellion Dog song, we're definitely going to do that. Anyhow, I'm very excited about today's show. I'm very excited about the next couple of shows We are all about the National Conference of Addiction Disorders. Next week, we're going to be talking to John McAndrew Associates. He's the director of Sensible Spirituality Associates. We'll be talking about grief. We'll be talking about the big book. It's great. It's coming up next week. And I met him for the first time in Anaheim at the National Conference of Addiction Disorders. Also, we met up with folks from Wellness Factors. And from that meeting on February 20th, 2014, I was invited to be their guest on their blog talk radio show. They do a lunch and learn. They're all about empowering uh, self-care and uh, they have a radio show. They're publishers. They publish health and wellness uh, books and booklets. They consult employee assistance programs and companies to help them cut down their health care costs and health insurance costs. Oh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So they had a show. They wanted to talk about addiction. They invited me. I'm going to let you listen to that. Be sure after the show to get a hold of us, either Twitter, Facebook, or at rebelliondogspublishing.com. I'll want to hear from you. I always do. So, a couple episodes of National Conference of Addiction Disorders, which, by the way, is in August this year in St. Louis, Missouri. So, maybe you should think about going yourself. I had a great time there. Let me share with you the show. Farida Contractor is the director for Wellness Factors, and she was good enough to have me as her guest on her show. So, let's go to that now. February 20th, 2014, Blog Talk Radio, Wellness Factors. 
Hello, my name is uh, Farida, and I'm the Director of Client Services for Wellness Factors, and I'll be the facilitator for today's Tele-Lunch and Learn on Addictions. We're really excited to welcome our guest speaker, Josie. Uh, Josie is an author and has written a fabulous book called Beyond Belief, um, and uh, we're really excited to learn more about that book um, later on in the show. So um, let's get started. <laughs> welcome, Josie. Well, thanks for All having right. me. Oh, you're welcome. So, um, Joe, let's start by telling the audience maybe today a little bit about yourself and, and what the catalyst was for your book called Beyond Belief. Uh, well, one of the uh, popular tools for addicts and alcoholics who live in recovery is using a daily reflection book to start each day or at the end of the day or just as a reference. and. In fact, they buy about 800,000 of them every year, and there's uh, specialty books for women, for men, for youth, for newcomers, for people with different types of addictions, for people who love us addicts and alcoholics. And all of them are based on a prayer-answering creator God kind of worldview. And I went looking for one around 2007 that was secular, and I couldn't find one, and I thought, how could that be in this century? So after I finished ranting to my friends for a while, someone said, well, you know, you've been around since the 70s. You are a writer. Why don't you write it? (laughs) And uh, I thought, okay. And it took about five years of collecting quotes and stats and ideas. And um, uh, I just sort of put together my 500 best ideas and then found the 365 most cohesive and uh, put the book together, and it's called Beyond Belief: Agnostic Musings for Twelve-Step Life, and it uh, it's well received by the marketplace. It satisfied an unmet need, uh, but everyone seems to like it. It's not anti-anything, so theists, atheists, agnostics, uh, anyone who has an interest in addiction seems to find it interesting. Mm, that's awesome. Now, addictions come in many different forms and spectrums. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some some addictions are um, towards alcohol or drugs. Um, I mean, there's food addictions. Are there like any warning signs that people should be aware of? You know, before they actually become addicted. Uh, that is a good question, and it's a bit of a, a paradox because most people who slip into addiction get very secretive about their behavior and uh, they might not be forthcoming with either their doctor or uh, their loved ones. But there is a a manual that uh, psychiatrists use. It's called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM. Maybe you've heard of it. And they recently... uh, uh, May 2013, they came out with the DSM-5, which changed some of the uh, definitions. The manual itself is controversial. Most psychiatrists like it and use it. Some are more dismissive about it, and some just, you know, sort of use it sparingly. But they made uh, some changes in the terminology just where alcohol was concerned, where the DSM-4 described two distinct disorders, alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence with specific criteria for each. For instance, uh, teenagers or a college fraternity might 
uh, drink alcohol in an abusive way. On a New Year's Eve, that doesn't necessarily depict uh, dependence. And then in the DSM-5, they integrated the uh, two disorders into one, and uh, they just call it alcohol use disorder with mild, moderate, and severe uh, subclassifications. In the U.S., uh, where they do a lot more statistics, they got 10 times the population they have in Canada. They're an organization called the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. By their name, they seem to have drawn that from the old two classifications, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see if they change their names. But they say that one in four people who drink heavily are at risk of becoming uh, problem drinkers, and we're not even talking about other substance abuse or process addiction or any of those things. But um, in the U.S., the percentage of people who drink who do binge drinking is about 25% of people 18 and older. They count about 17 million Americans who have an alcohol use disorder, as they call it. And uh, so it's a, it's a huge epidemic that, you know, costs companies and families of billions of dollars. They say that 10% of all kids live with at least one drinking parent. So um, just think in terms of what kind of impact that's going to have on them academically. There's some good news. When they started with the uh, sort of don't drink and drive campaign, there's been a huge reduction from the 80s till now in the number of automotive deaths. I think they've uh, reduced it by about 150,000 a year. But still, for uh, young people deaths, over 60% of uh, youth deaths are a result of drinking from behind the wheel anyway. so. And I think there's a, a program called MAD, Mothers Against... Um, yeah. I can't know the exact acronym, but MAD... Yeah, and, Mothers and Against Drunk the, Drivers, yeah. Drunk Drivers, and they've, they've had impact as well on the statistics, and I think that's great. But I guess my question is more about you know, sort of more of a self-diagnosis, like how do, what kind of questions would we ask ourselves um, um, if, you know, we're, we're going into, you know, an addictive state? Like I think that some people, and this has been my limited experience with this, but, you know, some people just don't even realize that they are addicted. They think it's, it's normal. The first sort of uh, self-evaluation that ever came out, because most self-help groups, treat addiction as a self-diagnosed disease. They're not going to tell you, yes, you belong, or no, you don't. But John Hopkins uh, came up with 20 questions. I've got a a sort of watered-down 12-question version. One, have you ever decided to, uh, this one's particular about drinking, stop drinking for a week or so, but only lasted a couple of days? Number two is, do you wish people would mind their own business about your drinking, stop telling you what to do. Three, have you ever switched from one kind of drink to another in the hopes that this would uh, keep you from getting drunk? Four, have you had an eye-opener upon uh, waking up in the morning? In other words, do you drink in the morning? Uh, Do you envy people who can drink without getting into trouble? Six is, have you ever had problems connected drinking during the last year, so work, reputation, health problems. Uh, Seven, relationships, relationships, that's right. 
Have you, uh, has your drinking caused uh, trouble at home? Eight is, do you ever get extra drinks at a party because you didn't, weren't getting enough drinking at everybody else's pace? Or nine is, do you tell yourself you can stop drinking anytime you want, even though you keep getting drunk when you don't mean to? Ten, have you missed days from work or school because of drinking? Eleven, here's a, a key one. Have you ever had a blackout, which isn't passing out? That is a complete loss of memory where you uh, were sitting with your friends and then the next thing you realize you're somewhere else. A period of time is completely missed. That's called a blackout. They wouldn't know you're in a blackout because you're still coherent, uh, but it's a, definitely a sign. And have you ever felt that your life would be better if you did not drink? Now, so those are 12 questions, and they say that if you answer yes to three or more, you probably have a drinking problem. And my experience is with alcoholics anyway, that they'll answer six to ten of them if they wow. are. There, there aren't a lot of close calls with it. Right. Right, and you know what? I think those questions need to be <laughs> put up on a wall because I mean those are fantastic, and uh, you know I think that it really brings people to the realization that they may be addicted or may not be, de- depending on how they answer the questions, of course. But they say that half the battle is to actually realize that you are addicted. I don't know if that's true or not, though. It, it is. You know, I recently uh, was doing a two-day seminar for U of T medical students about addiction. And one of the big things is for them to understand, how do you help people who don't want help or who don't give you accurate information? You get a blood test back and clearly their liver is in difficulty and you ask them, how much do you drink? And they say, a glass of wine with dinner maybe. <laughs> and they don't tell you about the two bottles after dinner. Uh, how do you right. help them, right? And the other interesting thing is in these self-evaluative questions, it really isn't how much you drink. There's a couple of questions of, you know, has your drinking increased for sure, but it's more what happens after you start drinking, the phenomena of craving. Uh, a lot of binge drinkers will drink for days on end and then stop for months on end. Uh, and mm-hmm. they they are fine, except you never know when they're going to go off again. And once they start, uh, that phenomena of craving takes over and they aren't responsible. They let people down. Uh, they get themselves in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think addictions are like a, more of a psychological or physiological battle or, or both? And um, do you believe that it's a combination of, you know, psychotherapy or medication or maybe going to a treatment facility or part be part of an AA program? Like what kind of combination of things work, um, do you think, for, for people struggling with addiction? Okay, there's a bunch of questions. I'll try your last one first and see if I can work through sure. them. <laughs> uh, sure. AA uh, isn't technically a, a program. It's a fellowship where men and women just share their own experience. It's peer-to-peer. There's no facilitators or leaders, and uh, they lend support to each other. Now, they have a suggested program, but of the over 100,000 groups, 
you know, there will be members that just treat the steps as anecdotal, good ideas, or, and, and there are others that take them very literally and practice them very stringently. So it's not a, a program per se, it's, it's a society. Uh, but, you know, among AA members, some will say it's all about the program, some will say it's really all about the fellowship, and some will say you can't you can't separate the two. You don't know where they begin. So uh, a, the great thing about AA is it's free and it's everywhere. I mean, there aren't many cities of 5,000 or more people that don't have an AA meeting or an NA meeting or some other uh, 12-step meeting. So it's it's readily accessible. And then there are other self-help groups that aren't 12-step oriented, so there's that. And when I first got clean and sober, which was back in the 70s, most people, through just help of their doctor and or meetings, AA meetings, for instance, that's how they did it. Uh, the treatment phenomena really started to uh, gain popularity in the 80s. I suppose it had something to do with uh, health plans that could pay for all of that. And now more people uh, get sober and then go to 12-step meetings for aftercare or for fellowship or for, you know, it's like getting in shape. you got to go to the gym, uh, and it takes a long time to get in shape, but then you still got to go every once in a while to stay in shape. So uh, all of these things work. Uh, none of these things are guaranteed. It's uh, It's as much... Uh, an art as it is a science, it seems. Mm-hmm. So what what would you say was the main reason why you were able to stay sober for, for 37 years? Like what what would you say is it was is the main reason why you were able to do this? Because that's, that's quite an accomplishment. I mean, I, I think for the callers, you know, I just I want to be able to give people hope. I'm just wondering right. what you did differently or, or what you did. I'll tell you this, and it it might not be exactly the hopeful message you want, but I can't look anyone in the eye and tell if they've had their last drink or not. Honestly, even when I look in the mirror, uh, I use the example of the director of one of the uh, treatment centers uh, in Ontario, sober over 40 years, uh, ended up becoming a client at the Betty Ford Center. He relapsed. Right. I mean, there's nothing I know about alcoholism and addiction that he doesn't know. It's not like he wasn't doing his fair share of uh, good Samaritanship, but somehow something happened. I use the disease model for addiction as a metaphor more than an exact definition. But if you accept that addiction is a disease, and you have to live with the fact that there is relapse, just like there would be from cancer or any other illness. So it can happen to anybody, and and I uh, hope I'll never uh, drink or use again, but if I did, I hope I would pick myself up by the bootstraps and start over again, which is hard to do for someone with long-term sobriety because they develop a currency or some value in their standing in the community as being sober for a while and starting over would certainly be hard. I don't want to make it bleak like none of us know and we're all ticking time bombs. Most people who stay sober for a year or longer stay sober. 
Um, it's just getting there. And most people will tell you, yes, I've had my last drink. There's a, a great book I would recommend to any of your uh, college, whether they're addicts or not. It's called Immunity to Change. And it was put out by uh, a Harvard uh, fellow by the name of uh, Robert uh, Keegan. And they talk about how most people, whether it's CEOs, you know, trying to bring greater shareholder value or someone trying to uh, stop smoking, what they describe as their immunity to change is we've got one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. And until you understand what need that uh, addictive behavior was satisfying, you can't just stop that behavior if it's uh, doing a good job at satisfying uh, a need, you need to understand in a lot greater detail. For instance, someone will tell you that they don't want to die of heart disease while they're lighting their next cigarette. Both are true, right? They want to smoke right. the cigarette yeah. and they don't want to die. Uh, New Year's resolutions, we, we've all done it. It's not just addicts, right? Uh, so right. it is, uh, you know, I guess part of the human condition, but you add something life-threatening like a, uh, an addiction to drugs or alcohol, and it's way more serious than losing 10 pounds. Mm-hmm, exactly. Now, how does, like, um, one get through the the regular hurdles of, you know, not maybe having enough money to, to, to take treatment or, you know, even just the stigma of addiction to say, hey, like I go to AA or whatever, you know, um, facility that or program they're part of. Like how does somebody actually get over that along with trying to battle the addiction? So let's look at uh, stigma for a minute. And some headway has been made. Years ago, uh, the American Medical Association used the term a disease for addiction and before that it was a moral failing that if there was an alcoholic in the family it was a, a a great shame not only for the alcoholic but the entire family and people were predisposed to hide it the, the whole family would try to hide the alcoholism we call that codependency today but how do you treat something that people won't own up to so so it was a, a big step forward when it got treated as sick people trying to get well, not bad people trying to act good. But you just look at, say, a, a politician who uh, becomes alcoholic. Rob Ford is a household name, not because of his uh, policies or his administration, but because of crack cocaine and alcoholism. And people are very quick to judge. People are very quick to condemn. So the stigma is real. That is is for sure. And then you look at other addictions, uh, gambling, uh, tremendous shame, sex, pornography. People get uh, busted for their sex addiction or uh, child porn. And and these are upstanding members of society. And, and people don't treat that as, oh, wow. Uh, look at the, the the loss of of time and energy to his family and poor sick guy. They 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 immediately judge them. You know, I I hope if they have a 12 step meeting, they're not meeting in uh, my community center where our daycare is for our kids. And there's still all kinds of stigma. So you got to get past that. 
the reality is there isn't as much stigma for a sober alcoholic as there is for the town drunk. So you can do a great deal by just treating the problem instead of ignoring it. And in my case, I thought it was a deep, dark secret. Uh, but when I finally got clean and sober and I went to some of my friends and I said, you know, I, uh, I think I'm an alcoholic. It was, yeah, we know Joe. <laughs> it was no secret. So yeah. th- there wasn't really anything to hide that people didn't already know. So there's right, that. Right. And then as far as the cost of it, I would suggest to anybody start with the least invasive way to get sober. So uh, there are self-help programs. Most people can see a family doctor, and, and more and more of them are trained. If that doesn't work, then try treatment. Some people will immediately go the treatment route because they've got a health plan, and why not take advantage of that? You know, it would be a, a three-week or a 28-day program where you will, you know, you'll get a tremendous education. They say that it takes at least three weeks to form a new habit, so you may return from that in the habit of being clean and sober. Money doesn't have to be an object because people, uh, you know, have been getting sober through the support of others for a, a long, long time, and there's no cost associated with that. I just wanted to talk a little bit about that support because there's somebody in, in my life that just went into a treatment facility uh, last month, and this is his second attempt to, to try and, and get sober. My experience with this is that he did really fantastic when he did have support after he came out of the treatment facility the first time. But when that support started lacking um, and loneliness stepped in, I think, and there was less community around him, he actually went back into the back into the facility again. And I don't know if 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 that's true for 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 most um, people that are struggling that they need the support, they need the community, or do you think there there are other options um, after somebody leaves a treatment facility? Uh, there is a, a lot of criticism, and we should listen to the criticism. But the reality is that there's this really high standard because it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Someone comes home clean and sober. They say that it's all behind me. Uh, I'm never going to treat you like that again. And then the first time they, you know, show up late for work or late getting home, you can't help but wonder. And then they're off again. And it is an absolute heartbreak, not only for the addict that thought, how could this happen to me, but the other people who gave them a second chance after promising them that that, that was it for them, and, and then they have their heart broken once again. Now, a lot of people who are treated for cancer eventually die of cancer, so was the cancer treatment a failure? Well, if it extended their life or improved the quality of their life, even for a time, uh, that's got to be a good thing. You know, you can be a Hall of Fame baseball player for only hitting the ball three out of ten times. But treatment, you know, there's so much on the line, we expect more. There's a a great book, again, I suppose I should be promoting mine, but but I I love books. I've always got three books on the go at any given time. I don't know how many a year I read, but there's a a book called Slaying the Dragon, The History of Addiction Treatment and Recovery in America by a guy named uh, William uh, White, and he's been at this since 
1969. It's the best book I know on sort of understanding the evolution of the mechanism, the the business of treatment. And and he really asked the question, how do we measure success? How long should it take? You know, everyone wants everyone to get sober the first time, and there's plenty of those stories. But in my own life, I know people that have been to treatment 18 times, and now they're sober 25 years. Wow. What if on the 17th great. time someone said, your chances are used up, get out of here? And again, stigma, you know, if there are people waiting for a liver transplant, well, the alcoholic is probably going to stay last on the list because, you know, he's just going to waste the, the new liver like he did the last one, right? So. Um, right. I, I can't, like I said, look into the eyes of someone and say, well, they've had their last drink. But it doesn't mean it's not worth trying and doing everything we can to help people, you know, with addiction. Uh, and it's not our fault that they fail, and it's not even their fault that they fail. You were asking me what kept me sober. Uh, I would have yes. to call it a phenomena. Scientifically, I don't know. I did a lot of things, right? I've been through counseling, I leaned on my friends, I, I used self-will, I went to meetings, I uh, worked the 12-step program, I, I did a number of things, and could I have taken any one of those components away and it worked? Maybe, I, I don't know. And addiction is a phenomenon. I can spot addiction and I can identify addiction, but I can't tell you who's going to get it or where it came from. We, we can't identify it in people's DNA yet. If you have uh, hereditary issues with addiction, maybe you're going to be more prone to it. But why is one sibling an alcoholic and one isn't? They grew up in the same household. They've got the same DNA. Everyone wants it to be more black and white, and that's just not right. uh, the reality. Right. Sorry. I'm just looking at the... <laughs> Yeah, thank you. I'm just looking at the time, Josie, and yeah. I really want to just leave the last uh, minute of the show just to um, for you to talk a little bit about your book, and if you have any last words of wisdom for the callers today, um, please feel free. Sure. Uh, we were talking earlier, you were talking about uh, a book called Courage to Heal, right, by uh, yes. Gerald yes. May, and he says to be alive is to be addicted, and and it is true that to live our life to the fullest, we have to be committed. We can't stand on the diving board looking at the water. We've got to make that commitment to it. But there's still a big difference between living life to the fullest and uh, living it in opposite extremes. Are pills addictive? Well, it really depends more on the... A sentient being, the human taking the pill, than the chemical makeup of the pill. Some of us are predisposed to overdoing it. And even those of us who are, we really have to separate what are bad habits and what are life-threatening behaviors that could take us out early. So it's really a matter of being honest, isn't it, and asking for yeah. help. Those are two very difficult things. All of us have biases. All of us have blind spots. And the recovery process for most of us is a, is a constant learning process. Honesty, open-mindedness, a willingness to change. With that, you can live a pretty full and rich life. And most people in recovery 
don't feel like they are disadvantaged or they're lacking or they don't get to live a full life because they don't party on New Year's Eve. We just do our thing. I find the industry fascinating. I'm kind of a a commentator at Rebellion Dogs Publishing. I do a a regular uh, blog on addiction, and anybody can follow that. You shake any family tree, a couple of drunks fall out of it. So even listeners who uh, don't have a problem with addiction themselves should really go back to the bookstore or Amazon or whatever. There's a lot of great literature on addiction for the non-alcoholic or the alcoholic or and all of those other process addictions too. Well, thank you, Josie, and I just want to say you've been on a really courageous journey, and uh, it's just been a pleasure to have you on our show today. It's been an eye-opening journey, and I don't regret a moment of it. There were things I would change, sure, but, you know, you never know what are our opportunities in life. And and one of them was uh, talking to you and your listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And for the callers today, we look forward to our next show next month. Thank you. Great. Bye now. Bye-bye. Life's a crowded room full of faces strangers When you're not the lead out the beer never changes I can't settle for getting by, so bring all the dangers Thanks for listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a RebellionDogsPublishing.com production. Contact us at news at RebellionDogsPublishing.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you.